Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello. Welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast, a podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. I'm James Rogers, and in this episode, I talk to Thomas Botelier, who provides us with a whole new way of thinking about the Second World War. You think it started in 1939? Well, Thomas argues that maybe it didn't. Instead, we should move out from our Europeanization of this historiography and instead look at what was happening in China with the Japanese invasion there or in Ethiopia with the Italian invasion there in the 1930s and start to think about how that chipped away at the international norms that paved the way for Hitler's aggression. This is putting the world back into the world wars. Hi Thomas, thanks for coming on the world wars. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. It's getting a bit darker and atmospheric here, but it's ideal for talking about the history of the world wars. And with that in mind, let's dive straight into your research, because I'm fascinated by your approach to the Second World War. It's not controversial to say that when we think of World War II, we have this standard view that it was Hitler's expansionist ambitions that mixed with European appeasement to spark the war, and then after this, falling in line, we have Italy and then, of course, Japan show their true colours at Pearl Harbour in 1941. It's a common historiography. But in your work, you counterintuitively argue that it might be the other way round. What do you mean by this? Well, like you said, we have this very peculiar image of the Second World War. So we see the war as a sort of last desperate attempt to save the world from these aggressors. The primary one being Hitler and Nazi Germany, and he's sort of the trailblazer for the Japanese and the Italians. And the allies in this story are a sort of passive group. They react, and they react to the events and the pace set by the Axis. But a more correct image would be the reverse. Actually, the desperate ones were the Axis. They made a sort of last bid attempt 
to save their hides, their political projects, in the face of overwhelming strength from the Allies. And when I say overwhelming strength, I'm thinking particularly of the rearmament policies that had been adopted. What I'm resisting is this idea that the democracies, the Allies, were always running after the facts. In fact, I would say they were prepared are preparing for war from much earlier than we think. So this image of appeasement and meeting the dictators in the middle also needs adjusting. So that's one thing. When you look at, say, the military policy, the rearmament policy, the standard story of appeasement and pacifism and passiveness starts falling apart. And you see that actually, say, Germany was much weaker than we tend to think as a power. So we have this image of sort of blitzkrieg and panzer strength and panzer war that is, in my view, and I'm relying on the work of scholars like Adam Tooze and Joe Maiolo, is fairly overstated. So that's one element. It's the element of military history, but also there's a global element, right? So we tend to think of the war as centered on Germany, as centered on Europe, and decided in Europe and begun in Europe, right? So the Polish government, for instance, last year during the commemorations of the start of the war in Poland, called Poland the first victim of the war. And this is very important to Polish identity today. But if you look at things globally, well, the same case could just as easily be made by the Chinese, who were attacked by the Japanese much earlier. There's two dates to choose from, 1937, when a full-scale shooting war started around Beijing, or even earlier, 1931, when the Japanese took northeastern China. So you can push the beginning of the war far further back than September 1939 and the attack on Poland. And when you do that, you're not just saying the Chinese are important and there was something going on there. It's a more powerful move in which you say the Chinese were absolutely central and the Japanese were absolutely central to the conflict. And once you take off your blinkers, or at least that's how I experienced it, you begin to see that actually it wasn't Germany that was leading in aggression, it was following. So it's also about decentering Europe and decentering the Nazis to get a bigger picture of what exactly went wrong here. And that picture is, in a way, also, it perhaps sounds irreverent to say we should care less about Hitler. But on the other hand, when you look at the bigger picture, you start to think that the problem was actually almost too big to control. So you could almost say it's even more frightening than before. That is fascinating because what you're doing is you're getting us to zoom out a bit from our Europeanization of history, a history that's written by the victors, and to look at the broader global landscape of conflict that's going on through the 1930s. What impact do you think this has on our historiography? Do you think that there's a case here to say that it was the Japanese who were the original aggressors and led the way as a way to inspire some of Hitler's ambitions? I certainly think so. And the Italians too. So the Italians also started a war against the rules of the international game, so to speak, before the Germans did. That's the war on Ethiopia, which is really important in exposing the limits of the existing international order. 
This is often mentioned in the standard story as this famous moment when the Ethiopian emperor speaks to the League of Nations and gets no support and is abandoned. And then a few years later, Hitler annexes Austria, and a few years later, he attacks Poland. But it's sort of a sideshow, and the main path is the one taken by the Germans. I think what is important about the global point of view is that we take into account how people in other parts of the world have experienced the war. So one of the things I always do with my students when we talk about this question is to ask them to consider the question, when did the war exactly begin, depending on where you are. So we just discussed for the Chinese, the war could start as early as 1931. And from an African point of view, you could say 1935. From a Swiss point of view, of course, the war never really started. And so you get a kaleidoscopic view. I think we need to understand the beginning of the war in a wider and longer time frame, one that takes into account the attempt to build peace after the First World War and takes that attempt seriously. I think that we tend to view the Peace of Versailles as a harsh peace and as a failed peace that... I think is not a fair assessment. Just the other day, I read someone, a friend actually, who was writing that after the First World War, there was no new world order that was constructed. There was nothing new. It took until 1945 for a real durable form of international relations to be established. But I think that a lot of research in recent years has shown that Actually, the interwar period, especially the first few years after 1919 and the Peace of Versailles, saw a massive innovation in international relations that profoundly changed the character of war and character of peace. And it, it was precisely against this new order that the Japanese first, followed by the Italians and only then by the Germans, were rebelling. So is this an eroding of the norms that were established after Versailles then, and the importance of state sovereignty and the breaking up of empires? You think that this is events that were taking place, actions taken place by Japan, by Italy, and then by Germany that chip, chip, chip away at the international system and set a precedent that then leads us into war? Yeah, I think that's a nice metaphor, chipping away at the existing order, and that we should see the road to war as a sort of tug of war between the, the powers that be, so Britain, France, the United States. And I think a global view should also take into account that the United States was involved from a very early point, that the standard view of the United States is isolationist is also, well, frankly, wrong. And the United States was very much involved in trying to build peace in the 1920s and 1930s. And this whole architecture was set up. Essentially, the, the modern international system as we know it, in which you're not allowed to just attack another country just because you disagree with it, in which there are sanctions on aggression, and in which there is an international organization that regulates a lot of interstate and cross-border relations. And what happened in the 1930s, obviously under the impact of the Great Depression, is that first Japan, followed by the Italians, started rebelling against this order. 
they weren't satisfied by their place in it, and they wanted, as they saw it, equality with the real people running the show, ergo the, the British, the French, and the Americans. And they didn't get that. They didn't get equality. They didn't get a slice of the pie equal to those of others. And moreover, this sort of begs the question, but why was their response so violent, right? Why did they attack other societies, other states? And I think the answer is because they were given very little recourse to anything else. It was either take it or leave it. You can either accept your place or you can rebel. That's the only other option. And you see that very clearly in the road of Japan to war with the United States. There are increasingly high sanctions to the point that Japan was effectively staring economic paralysis in the eye. And then they had a very stark choice to make. Either we attack this country we can never win a war with, or in fact a whole alliance that we could never win against, or we give up our sovereignty. The Nazis faced a very similar choice as well. So do you think this sets a little bit of a precedent or perhaps gives us some lessons for our modern times, a bit of applied history here? Because the points you're saying almost resonate with an aggressive, offensive Russia, a Putin moving in to the sovereign nation that is Ukraine, and then with little green men and women moving through and taking Ukrainian sovereign territory. But of course, the reaction of the West at this point is to move in with sanctions and ever-increasing sanctions. Is that something you think is going to put us on a collision course? I've been thinking about that a lot. What exactly can we learn from pitching this new history of the origin of the Second World War? I don't have a straight answer to this, I'm afraid. I'm too, too much of a historian for that. But I think, first of all, there's a long history of undeclared war that those little green men you mentioned fit into. And to my knowledge, the first undeclared war is precisely Japan's war on China. And the reason that they didn't declare war is because if they did, the League of Nations would have slapped sanctions on them and crippled their war economy immediately. So not declaring war was a sort of strategic choice, but shaped by these legal norms, which are in the standard story regarded as just a paper tiger. But you see, it did actually affect real decisions. And I think in terms of undeclared war, we can learn that it has a long history and that there's been many attempts to end it. The broader question that, I, that you posed, are we going into the same direction as in the 1930s? I'm not so pessimistic, I think. I think that the big difference with the 1930s is that we don't have anybody who is openly, brazenly rejecting the norms of international society, right? So Russia has no alternative project to the, let's call it the liberal international order. It just wants, in a limited area, it is demanding certain rights. China, likewise, is not really setting up anything other than parallel structures, like its own investment bank. I don't see anyone who is building an alternative ideological project like the fascists or the Nazis, and I don't see anyone attempting to build regional order walled off from the rest of the world, which is what the Japanese tried to do in East Asia. And in societies, I don't see the type of conflict that we saw and the sort of pressure by a Great Depression that we saw in the 1930s. So I'm not 
that worried for the stability of the world. I think we're looking at something quite new. We're not seeing a repeat of the past. That's good to hear. It's nice to have an optimist on the show. That's great. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. So let me push you further, because if we can say that the Second World War started in the early 1930s, then when would you say it ended? I think that's a very good question. And a book just came out the other year, like last year, written by a good friend of mine, Andy Buchanan. It's called The Short History of the Second World War. He stops that short history in 1953 and the truce that ended the Korean War. Now, why does he do that? Because he argues quite convincingly, once you start thinking about it, that the roots of this war, the Korean War, lie in the Second World War. I mean, it started in on the ruins of the Japanese Empire, which had gambled and lost. So you can go that far, right? And then you would also have to think of, say, the colonial wars in Vietnam and Indonesia as part of the Second World War. The same way we now tend to, maybe we is too much, but there's a lot of books coming out saying that, say, the wars in Russia and in Turkey after the First World War were also part of the First World War. So Andy Buchanan argues that there's this long war that starts in 1931 and ends in 1953. These codas to the war. Another point you might say it stopped if 1953 is too far would be 1949 and the end of the Chinese Civil War. So it begins in China and ends in China. And many GIs that were demobilized in the U.S. in 1945 were remobilized and sent to China in order to try to help Chiang Kai-shek's Republic of China regime fight the communists of Mao Zedong. So you can sort of trace how the soldiers that had fought all over the world for five years suddenly end up in China in the late 1940s after the official end of the Second World War. So there are multiple choices, but certainly I think the fighting for much of the world didn't stop in May 1945, as in Europe, or in August 1945, which we just a few months ago we had the 80th commemoration. You list so many examples there that, again, we zoom out and we look at the world and we continue to see those hotbeds of conflict that continue after August 1945. And 
you lead me to think about India and the partition of India and the fact that there were Indian nationalists fighting with the Japanese and you start to see that spilling over or British covert operations in Iraq or Sudan and then you move through to Aden and Malaya and you can start to see where this conflict keeps rumbling on. So it really is a fascinating perspective and broadens those dates that we traditionally think that the Second World War began and ended. But it's not just in terms of the broader politics or the dates of war that you're concerned with in your work, because I was reading through and looking to see how you also challenge our canonical historical take on who was involved in the war as well, and you urge us to take more of a global point of view of war. Now, I'm familiar with people like John O'Comfra's work on the untold experience of African soldiers, carriers, and labourers during the First World War, but you start to take this and apply this to the Second World War. Is that right? I'm not the only one, but... Again, um, now talking about the military history of the conflict itself, if you pick up any sort of standard history, synoptic history of the war, there's a very strong focus on land battles and especially land battles in Europe, right? You see that also reflected in popular culture. So the huge presence of Operation Overlord and uh, already far less for other campaigns in Europe like Italy. Likewise, in China, a lot of focus on land battles in China, in Chinese movies. And historians seem to be, it's odd, they're supposed to be experts, but they just follow the movie directors and the authors of novels in this focus on land battles. The standard story of the military history of the Second World War is a story of tanks and big battles like France and Stalingrad and Kursk and... Overlord and the art and the Battle of the Bulge and uh, oh yes there was some bombing and oh then the war is over, but of course there was much more going on. There's been a lot of interesting work on actually the role of African soldiers and African laborers in the war. There's a lot of work coming out on uh, the Middle East now, which we tend to forget when we talk about the war and what was going on in countries like Iraq or Iran. But even the sort of more traditional military history, there's a wonderful story that I can tell to illustrate how we can see the war differently. Again, drawing on Andrew Buchanan's work here. The 14th Army, the British 14th Army in Burma, which fought the so-called Forgotten War against the Japanese there in Myanmar, was a very multinational force in which you can find records of Polish exile soldiers leading the King's African rifles, so British African soldiers from Kenya, into battle as part of the British Indian Army and as part of a sort of strategic command that was Anglo-American. So this very mixed, almost Creole force was facing the Japanese there. And you see that on both sides, actually. So I've been mostly talking about the Allied side so far, but if you look at the Axis side, say the German Wehrmacht on the Eastern Front, again, we tend to think of this as a monolithic force, and it's hard to conceive of the Nazis relying a lot on multinational, international forces, because it seems to be against their ideology. But I forget which general it was, but there was a German general who, overseeing all the forces at his command, said, well, this is a veritable League of Nations army. 
because there were so many nationalities in it, right? So uh, Romanians, Hungarians, Italians, Spaniards, everybody from Scandinavia to uh, Portugal. And that the most famous example being the Waffen-SS with all its foreign battalions. And that's just the armies. I think what is very important, what I would like to see change in the general uh, picture of the war is to pay more attention to the sea. Uh, the sea is for some reason forgotten, and when we think about it, we think of some episodes at sea. So I'm thinking of Graf Spee or uh, the Bismarck, the famous German battleship that was sunk, or and the Battle of the Atlantic, and that's about it. But if you take into account the sea as a trade, an area that links the world through maritime commerce, you begin to see all kinds of countries you never knew were actually involved in the war. So, for instance, this is not very well known, after the fall of France and during the Battle of Britain, the year after that, we tend to think of, for instance, Britain alone and British people suffering because they no longer had access to enough calories and food because they couldn't import anything from Europe. Actually, the calorie intake of the average Briton did not decrease. Uh, they just imported, for instance, meat all the way from Australia and Argentina and grain from Canada. And it was the command of the seas that enabled the, the British to do this. And then you see that actually places like Argentina and Uruguay, who were never officially in the war, actually played a rather important role in the daily experience of people in the war. One final point I'd like to make about a different view of the war is more towards the end of the war if we take into account resistance movements everywhere. So in the centered view of, say, the desert war in Libya, the local population is basically absent. It sort of plays out on an empty stage in, in which the Nazis fight the British and the local people, the Libyan Arabs and the Tunisians and Egyptians are absent. But actually, immediately following the defeat of Rommel in the desert, there were nationalist uprisings, which have been essentially written out of the history of the war. And these nationalist uprisings, I'm talking about protests and demands for rights, petitions to colonial governors, occurred from Libya all the way to Morocco. And there are many examples of this, of people looking for radically different society, really, in the vacuum that emerges when one power is uh, removed and new forces move in to liberate them. And I think that's the very important story that needs to be told and would put many people back in the story that have been forgotten. Thomas, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us about this, because it is, of course, eminently important to continue to study the Anglo-American European history of this. But as you say, if we just broaden our horizons a little bit, and start to look at these fascinating examples that continue after the war, occur before the war, we start to see a very different picture of the war, even shifting the dates of the war, and even resonates with the politics that we have in the world today. Where can people read more of your work and what's coming next? So I'm currently working on a book manuscript that I hope to get published uh, in the next year or two maybe ambitious at the moment, but let's see. My work on this, I'm still bringing it out. You can find at least one article dealing with the grand alliance between the British and the United States as a transnational force rather than, say, two complete holes that just happen to be together in the European Review of History. 
Fantastic. Well, we look forward to getting you back on the show when your book comes out in a year or two or three or hopefully sooner. Let's hope so. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.